0: In our previous lecture, we looked at the professional. In this lecture, we're looking at the ethnic minority. One of the most compelling universal expectations is future occupational achievement and financial success based on higher educational attainments. This has been reinforced by numerous studies that show the economic value of an education. That is, the added value a high school diploma or university degree has on an individual's working life earnings and occupational prospects. One may argue that this is the result of a meritocratic selection procedure, such as one envisioned by Max Weber, who we looked at in our earlier lectures. Effectively, what it suggests is an individual's achievements in education is the main criteria for occupational advancement. This assumes that occupational outcomes are based solely on merit, which is often defined by educational attainment. When we examine the educational attainments of ethnic minorities in Toronto, Canada's largest city, They reflect the tremendous efforts by the city, the province, and the federal government to improve the educational standards of the minority populations. Now, in the second part of the equation is this idea of the labor market. The labor market is a central determinant in assessing ethnic groups' economic performance. So there's two things we can look at. We can look at income and ethnic participation by occupational sectors, which has historically been reliable measures for discerning an ethnic penalty in the labor market. The existence of observable ethnic concentration in certain occupational sectors may suggest differential access to the labor market and potential ethnic penalties. Now, in spite of the fact that ethnic minorities in Toronto have higher levels of educational attainment, when we look at the labor market, when we look at their occupational outcomes, we see that they are having an ethnic penalty. Namely, their education does not fully match up to their labor market outcomes. And here we see this when we look at odds ratios between high-level managers, mid-level managers, and the professional Now, the central question we need to ask ourselves is why do ethnic penalties exist? Why is it that we find that educational levels do not match up to occupational outcomes on the basis of income or on the basis of um, high level managers being uh, ethnic minorities? One of the ways we can explain the ethnic penalty is by looking at discrimination. Discrimination on the basis of ascriptive factors, such as one's appearance, denoting ethnic minority or ethno-gender status, is generally regarded as a source of economic inefficiency. This is not to mention there are overtones of social injustice, challenging the normative principles of equality of opportunity neoclassical economic models, with their emphasis on decisions by rational agents, suggest that a a firm or a government will recruit, promote and set wages according to an individual's marginal productivity. And in fact, when we go back to Weber and we go back to Taylor, it's this idea that we want the worker, we want our individuals in the organization to be the most productive and we are going to recruit those who are most productive. In effect, on this basis, in a market economy model, it is irrational to discriminate against a member of an ethnic minority with higher productivity solely on the grounds of descriptive factors, since this implies a failure to maximize productivity. The neoclassical economic models view that the market is one of impersonal exchange is, however, incomplete. It underplays the social and psychological elements that are involved when it comes to the recruitment and promotion of individuals. When it comes to the employment of labor, direct personal relations between the employee and the employer, as well as as among employees, are both involved. This has a potential for adding a discriminatory element. In this regard, to aptly examine discrimination in government, there must first be a recognition that discrimination can manifest itself in two forms. There can be statistical discrimination and exclusionary discrimination. The theory of statistical discrimination is an information-based theory, assuming that employers are victims of imperfect information. In practice, statistical discrimination occurs when an employer fails to fully assess the relevant occupational abilities of a member of an ethnic group and makes generalized assumptions about the value of their human capital. This can be operationalized in multiple and overlapping forms with one example being the employer consciously or not perceiving ethnic minority status as a proxy for lower quality of human capital. Ethnicity is therefore transformed into a proxy signaling potential future productivity by members of the same ethnic group, with hiring patterns adjusted accordingly. Another avenue for discrimination arises when an employer undervalues an ethnic minority's formal qualifications. While educational attainment may signal to an employer of one's potential abilities and promise, this signaling may be disjointed with the presence of preferential treatment in education for ethnic minorities. One of the consequences of preferential treatment in education for ethnic minorities is that it may signal to employers that ethnic minorities may not be the most productive or highly prized talent. Now proving exclusionary discrimination is a much more difficult proposition than statistical discrimination given its predominantly anecdotal nature. Exclusionary discrimination occurs when a member of an ethnic minority group is impeded at a potential or current position due not to their capacity, but an external barrier that artificially inhibits their growth. To test the hypothesis that one's visible physical appearance can play a major role in increasing the labor market penalties for ethnic minorities, This table looks at the educational and occupational outcomes by Non-European Ethnic Minority Group's Visibility Index in Toronto. Members of an ethnic minority group who self-identified as visible minorities were categorized into a scale reaching as high as 95 to 100% to as low as 75% and below. For instance, since 99% of Bangladeshis reported that they were visible ethnic minorities, they were thus classified within the 95 to 100% cohort. Conversely, since 94.7% of Grenadians uh, reported being a visible minority, they will be subsequently placed in a 90 to 94% cohort. In effect, the index gauges ethnic minorities' self-perception of their visibility in terms of physical appearance. What is observed is that most visible ethnic minority groups, that is the 95% and above group, have a higher odds of being more educated than Europeans and other ethnic minority groups, both in undergraduate and graduate education. However, this cohort is more likely to be unemployed than Europeans and and other non-European ethnic minorities and share a similar size ethnic penalty as other non-European ethnic minorities when it comes to their demographics in managerial and professional positions, as well as in salary. What this suggests is that discrimination on the basis of physical appearance is not a widespread phenomena to explain the paradox of ethnic minority development in Toronto. This is not to deny the existence of discrimination on the basis of physical appearance, but rather to suggest that this type of discrimination alone is not a major factor explaining varying educational and occupational outcomes between ethnic minorities and the dominant group in Toronto. To test whether a linguistical handicap is a major factor explaining Toronto's ethnic penalty, this table looks at the educational and occupational outcomes by ethnic minority groups who reported English as their first language. Non-European ethnic minorities who identify English as the first language were scaled in 20% intervals. For example, since 99.7% of Trinidadians reported English as a first language, they would be placed in the first quintuple, the 80 to 100% of the Linguistical Index, with each ethnic minority group thereafter following this categorization pattern. While categorizing ethnic minority groups on this basis may not fully gauge their linguistical proficiency since, for example, a member of a Bangladeshi ethnic minority group who in spite of 8.2% of their group members reporting English as a first language may be completely proficient in the language. It can provide, however, a proxy for potential linguistical discrimination. The table, offers inconclusive evidence to suggest a linguistical handicap is a major contributing reason for Toronto's ethnic penalty. The lowest quintuple, the 0-19% category, seemingly have one of the highest odds of educational attainment both at the undergraduate and graduate levels, compared to European groups and other non-European ethnic minorities. Moreover, while the lowest quintuple also have the highest rate of unemployment, their demographics in managerial and professional positions exceed all other ethnic minority groups, and in fact, they have achieved convergence in European groups and professional positions. This situation may be the result of the lowest quintuple benefiting from the secondary labor market. Thus far, it appears that examining discrimination on the basis of physical appearance or a linguistical dimension separately has yielded inconclusive evidence to suggest that they play a major role in explaining the ethnic penalty in Toronto. However, when examining at-risk groups for discrimination, those who are 80% and above the visibility index and the lowest quintuple on the linguistical index, there are some fascinating results that can be yielded. As this table illustrates, at-risk groups who make approximately 12% of Toronto's population have a higher educational attainment than European groups, but suffer an ethnic penalty in each labour force category except for their demographics and professional occupations. While at risk ethnic minority groups do suffer larger ethnic penalties than other ethnic minorities in Toronto, this cohort appears to be groups that are relatively recent arrivals to the city in the 1990s and onwards. While discrimination can play a role in explaining the ethnic penalty, another sort of factor to consider is the role of social networks. The network conception of labor allocation demonstrates how social segregation can create labor market segregation through network referrals. Effectively, the point remains here is that in in scenarios such as this, the discrimination no longer has any cost to the discriminator, but reaps social rewards. Since many high wage employers, such as those embedded in government, depend on referrals by the existing labor force, who target their positions by relying on word-of-mouth advertising by its employees, coupled with the fact many unskilled or low-wage vacancies usually attract greater mass advertisements, the job search strategy is simultaneously a choice of wage offer distribution. Moreover, when ethnic minority members do not have vast pre-existing resources, uh, the odds of these members attaining high wage Uh, sort of occupations in government depends on their access to a heterogeneous social network. When the job search process fails to match high human capital of ethnic minorities with suitable job positions, it sets an important precedent for future generations. The attitudes towards the job search and an overall economic marginalization of ethnic minorities may disadvantage the performance of future generations. This sets the sort of stage for a potentially producing a continued ethnic penalty, reinforcing a structured inequality among ethnic minority groups in comparison to the dominant groups. Thus far, we can explain ethnic penalties in government organizations by looking at discrimination, by looking at social networks. A third facet is looking at the working culture of the government agency or organization the predominance of informal contacts and referral in hiring strategies maintains homogeneity at the organizational level and strengthens the power of non-minorities to steer and shape the working culture. Working culture includes patterns of informal social behavior, such as communication, decision-making, and interpersonal relationships, which is often dictated by the dominating groups, values, assumptions, and norms. Identifying differential treatment in a working culture is a contentious proposition since minority and non-minority groups often perceive the same working environment differently. Both groups may live in different perceptual spheres within the organization and thus often have conflicting perceptions about the working environment and their ability to participate in the working culture. Acknowledging that working culture of an organization can play a major role in perpetuating the ethnic minority disadvantages in government is a crucial step. The next step is to assess steps to create a positive working culture that is inclusive of both minorities and non-minorities. Of course, those who experience differential treatment in the working culture and who seek to bring about change must do so within a structure of inequality that may be responsive in a fashion that is in in denial or in resistance. This has the possibility of further compounding ethnic minority disadvantages in governmental agencies and organizations. Finally, we can look at social trust as a variable to explain the ethnic penalty. Social trust generally refers to trust among strangers, rather than family members, friends, or acquaintances involved in multiple interactions. There is considerable research concluding one of the major challenges of an ethnically heterogeneous community is that it may potentially reduce social trust between dominant groups and ethnic minority groups. Now, social trust applies to the job matching process since prospective employees and the employer must have a minimal level of trust in each other's accountability before they can mutually engage in a working relationship. One can hypothesize the greater the social trust between prospective employer and employee, the greater confidence that both parties will have a potentially fruitful working engagement. What this implies is that a decline in the levels of social trust in communities between ethnic minorities and the dominant group may be accompanied by a decline in in the willingness of employers who are risk-sensitive to difference, as demonstrated through numerous studies, to hire ethnic minorities who, who may be perceived not to share common norms and values. This is especially important in cases where the prospective employees are found via open market searches, such as direct application. During a cold interview where the employer is meeting the interviewee as a virtual stranger without the benefit of a social network referral to vouch, in a sense, employers rely on perceptual information during the interviews, reinforced by the formal application information to gauge the social trust levels. The situation becomes cyclical given the presence of income inequalities between ethnic minority groups and dominant groups. It is plausible to argue that one of the main reasons behind the decline of social trust among ethnic minorities relative to the dominant group is due to income disparities. Put succinctly, social trust involves a risk element. Ethnic minorities have lower incomes may have an elevated social distrust with the dominant group since they cannot afford to have a larger risk elasticity. That is, they may not be best positioned to survive risk. When it comes to the job matching process, this means that the potential employer may sense lower levels of social trust with an ethnic minority candidate and thus may be less inclined to hire that individual. Thus far, we've explained potential ethnic penalties in government by looking at discrimination, by looking at social networks, by looking at uh, working culture as well as social trust. We now turn our attention to ideas and how we can alleviate uh, the ethnic penalty. While the education of ethnic minorities has been relatively successful to the extent that their educational attainments are on par or even exceed that of the dominant group, from a social justice perspective, the existence of ethnic penalties in the labor market can be an affront to the normative principles of equality of opportunity. In fact, one can argue that there is a moral obligation to seek equity in the labor market, insofar it represents the ethnic diversity of the community. While the validity of this social justice argument can be debated, we ought to frame the justification for improving ethnic minority representation in government by stressing the economic benefits. The ethnic penalty represents an inefficient allocation of human capital, imposing an added economic cost on all individuals regardless of their status as dominant or minority group members. Given the risk-adverse nature of employers, employment equity often suffers. Employers are more inclined to hire people similar to them, akin to a potential friend and who they perceive to share a high social trust with notwithstanding it can rob the government of their competitiveness, while the skills and training of those who are inefficiently allocated are devalued. It appears improving ethnic minorities' occupational realities is often seen as social welfare rather than an economic benefit. If the conversation is framed within the economic benefit argument, then both government enterprises, as well as private enterprises, are more inclined to listen. The message that has to be delivered is that ethnic minority groups are important for the economic benefit of all organizations. Although one can be optimistic that in generations a gradual convergence in labor market experiences may occur between ethnic minorities and the dominant group, this argument is not helpful for the current generation who do not have the luxury of waiting. The fears that many ethnic minorities may become disengaged, developing a gap between expectations developed through their educational attainment and what is realized in the primary labor market. A more realistic reading of the evidence presented in this lecture can conclude that some intervention is needed at this juncture. Foremost, government expenditures on education is large. Therefore, governments at all levels have a significant stake in ensuring ethnic minorities realize their potential in the labor market and to minimize the economic losses that come with the underutilization of their human capital in the form of education. Few employers actively maintain programs designed to remove barriers to workplace recruitment and advancement, and crucially to change the traditional working culture that we have seen act as an important determinant in perpetuating the ethnic penalty. There are a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to the livelihoods of ethnic minorities. The local government can play a major role in reducing the stereotypical image of ethnic minorities. Now, of course, combating deep-seated prejudices is a difficult proposition for any government policy. But this does not mean that local government cannot implement strategies to assist in changing the commodified perception of ethnic minorities. Whether there's sufficient political capital or motivation necessary to enact these policies is another question. Non-action in these regards can be explained if governments embrace the idea that the market is the final arbiter of social justice, that is the market can determine the fair distribution and compensation for labor. In line with this process, one potential fear if the government intervenes is that they may effectively distort market conditions. The formidable role of social networks or social trust in the job allocation process demonstrates the inadequacy of leaving labor market equity to, quote, market forces. There are significant market failures, having little to do with statistical discrimination as traditionally understood, which play a powerful role in perpetuating the ethnic penalty in governmental agencies. Conversely. Educational and occupational experiences are influenced by social and psychological externalities, notably within the social context of opportunity within which ethnic minority groups are embedded. Thus, government's legitimacy and motivation to enact policies to curb the ethnic penalty stems from this realization. This concludes our lecture on the ethnic minority. If you're interested in learning more about ethnic minorities, please have a look at the lecture series on ethnicity, immigration, and social policy.